tonight's thought. Suspected white male terrorists seem to have it really easy in the world today. Yeah, there I was there and standing in line at the ferry to go to the Statue of Liberty in New York City. And I'm chaperoning a school trip of about, you know, 40 high school kids. So I'm pretty important to the trip. The kids depend on me. And little do I know that I've got in my shoulder bag what appears to be a bomb. It doesn't look like a bomb to me, and it didn't look like the uh, a bomb to the TSA in Atlanta, Georgia, or at John F. Kennedy Airport in New York City, but here I am. It, it, it apparently looks like a bomb, and, and I know this because I hand the shoulder bag over to the security guard for inspection before I can get on the boat, and he pulls out this case that I got for Christmas a couple years earlier. And it's a uh, it's a phone charging case, you know. It's got like one of those battery packs, and it even comes with a uh, a couple of clamps. If you ever run low on battery and need to jumpstart your car, you can get a little bit of amperage, you know, to 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 jumpstart your car. And it's actually come in handy a couple of times. And I don't need to bring this jump starter kit with me on the trip but I just like having everything together the way that I got it on Christmas morning back in 2016 and I'm going through a phase right where my phone cannot hold battery power for longer than about two hours and uh, you know I'm out in New York City for you know 14-15 hours a day so I, I need I need a phone charging kit so it would make total sense why I would have one. You know, everybody has these things. You see them walking around, uh, taking pictures of things. You know, the tourists in New York City taking pictures of uh, whatever the big building is they have there. They have a lot of them. <laughs> the Freedom Tower, Freedom, you know, taking pictures of the 9-11 Memorial. And they've got these gigantic cables, these real thick cables that come from their phones, you know, then go into their fanny bags or whatever. And what I had was nothing similar, but I think what broke it, the straw that broke the camel's back, was the jump starter kit. Because, yeah, it, it had a, you know, a red and a black cable. I, you know, I guess you could say, I mean, maybe if you were doing a high school production of, uh, you know, adaptation of United 93, then, yeah, sure, maybe the... Uh, it can make a pretty convincing bomb prop. But here I am talking to professional security experts at the uh, Statue of Liberty, waiting to get on the ferry in New York City, and they're saying, like, man, we can't let you on the boat with that thing. That looks like a bomb. And I said, I assure you, it's not a bomb. And they said, well, we can't take any chances. And I was like, well, can, you know, I just... um, you know, here's my my principal, and I bring over my boss, my 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 principal, the executive, te- the, you know, director of the school where I teach, and I say, listen, she can vouch for me, okay? I'm not a terrorist. And they said, man, I'm sorry, we can't let you on that boat. You're gonna have to leave it here, or not go at all. 
And I mean, this is like a $100 kit or whatever. And, and I value a hundred dollars. You know, I'm a teacher. I value money. Not to say if you're not a teacher, you don't value money, but you know, you, you get the idea. And, uh, so I, I didn't go to the Statue of Liberty. I mean, it's, you know, I could see it. it it's there, you know, and I, I really don't know what being five feet away from it is going to accomplish is, is going to do for me. So, so I have to, you know, walk back and, and they turn me away. They let me go on my way. See, because they don't, they don't mind bombs in the city. They just don't want them at their statue or on their boats. Yeah, so I seem to have it pretty easy there, you know. I'm a white male, and I'm suspected of being a terrorist, and they don't detain me. They don't question me. They just turn me loose, and I and I go on the subway with this uh, battery pack that looks like a bomb and <laughs> ride back to my hotel in Times Square and put it up, and then I just, you know, walk around the city for a while waiting for my kids to uh, come back from the statue on the boat. And I ask them, how was it, guys? How was it when you saw it five feet close as opposed to, you know, a mile away? They said, eh. <laughs> Well, from Birmingham, Alabama, this is the Midnight Citizen Show. I'm your host, Mike Booty. I'm back. I am back. Last show I did was uh, December of 2018. That's right. December of 2018. I had my last day of teaching for the uh, fall semester, and I went to the River Chase Galleria where there had just been a, a shooting, actually. And I wanted to investigate to see how the security was there. And, uh, you know, I, I sat there alone and did a podcast in the food court. I had been hassled at the River Chase Gallery a few times, and I guess I was kind of, I don't know, maybe I'm just like a bit of a troublemaker. I just wanted to see if they would hassle me again, you know, because they don't like people just loitering and uh, talking into strange boxes in the food court of the River Chase Galleria. And I've indeed been asked to, you know, go several times. But I keep coming back to the Galleria there. And, uh, yeah, that was just going to be like a one-off show. And here I am now, a year and a half later, um, in the studio doing another podcast. And it's great to be back. But yeah, I was uh, remembering that New York story. Everybody's got one of, of uh, you know, being suspected of something. And uh, the weird thing is they just didn't do anything about it. If I was so dangerous, if I was posing such a threat, then uh, I don't know why in the world they didn't detain me, you know, and ask me questions and pat me down and all that stuff. And I had gotten on two planes with that uh, with that kit. So 
I was reminded of this uh, a couple of days ago. I was sitting uh, in front of my apartment building. You know, it's summer now, and now I, I have the mornings to go out and make myself a cup of coffee and sit outside and enjoy the summer air before it gets just so baking hot you can't see here in Alabama. And this guy pulls up uh, outside and he gets out and he comes up and he asked me, uh, hey, what's it like to live here? I said, in Birmingham? He's like, no, in this apartment building right here. And I go through, you know, this is not the first time this has happened. I've lived in this apartment building for 10 years and I don't have a patio. I don't have a porch. So I have to go outside to have my, uh, you know, to have my morning coffee sessions and reading sessions and cigar smoking sessions. And, and by design, I, I become kind of a representative for the building and sometimes even for the neighborhood. You know, people walk by and they just see me out there. And uh, I guess I, I present myself as like a nice, friendly tome. And, uh, you know, they ask me, uh, they ask me questions. I become a font of information, a font of knowledge. And, uh, you know, this is not the first time this has happened. Uh, I, I've sat out there before and I've told people about the history of Birmingham because they've asked. I've told them about the history of the neighborhood, what it's like to live in the neighborhood. I've given them crime statistics. And all this stuff happened with this guy I was talking to for about an hour or so while he was out there waiting for uh, a representative from the apartment company, from, from the, uh, from the uh, renter, to come and let him in and show him an apartment. It turns out he had just come from L.A. And he was just so exhausted with Los Angeles and, and so uh, tired of the city. And, and he worked for an IT for uh, the U.S. attorney in Los Angeles and he just packed his car one day last week and he just got in his car and started heading east which is interesting most people in this country head west but I guess when you're as far west as west can be in America then you start going east you know you do that reverse road trip kind of like an easy rider <laughs> and he somehow ended up in Birmingham Alabama which you know most people in LA probably don't even know Birmingham Alabama unless they come from there you know, they, they might think of the South, they might go to Memphis or Nashville or New Orleans or Atlanta. But for some reason, he ended up here in Birmingham and uh, he had been apartment hunting for the last couple of days. He had actually gotten a job along the way here in Birmingham working for the U.S. attorney here. And uh, he was just looking for apartments. He didn't know if he was going to stay in Birmingham. He, you know, he said a year from now, I may be here, I may not be here. I'll just kind of see what the vibe's like and and all that and you know, we get to talking, and uh, I tell him about the last 10 years of living here. I, I, you know, it's been a nice, quiet place. We've had a couple of uh, things happen that have been sort of destructive. Uh, you know, uh, somebody came through the neighborhood one day and threw a rock in my window. That wasn't very pleasing. But that happened a couple of years ago, and it was an isolated incident. And I told him, you know, we live up the street from a bar district, and, you know, you know a lot of people are out at 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, you know, they, they tend to get a little rowdy, but, but it's not that bad. It's not that bad. And, and, and for the neighborhood that you're in, the, the rent is not bad at all. And, you know, it's a good place. It's a good place to live. And we get to talking about the state of the world because uh, currently we're living in this uh, pandemic 
this coronavirus pandemic, this COVID-19 pandemic, if you want to get technical about it. And, uh, you know, obviously it's a scary time to be alive, and we were talking about a lot of stuff, and I told him, you know, it's sad that you came to Birmingham right now because everything's kind of closed down, even though we're a red state, and we're beginning to open up against all this data showing that this thing is far from being over. Uh, but you know, nevertheless, uh, if you stay here a while, you'll be able to see the city come back to life again. And, you know, it's, it's a nice place. We've got some startup tech firms here. We've got, uh, uh, you know, nice restaurants and bars every five minutes so much so that they're actually oversaturated (laughs) and, uh, they're kind of all running each other out of business and canceling each other out. But anyway, that's another story. So and uh, then we get to talking about travel. You know, we're, we're talking about how he just did a road trip. And uh, it's summertime. I usually like to, you know, do, take road trips, you know, during the summertime. And last year, my wife and I, we went up to Niagara Falls. And, you know, we always like to get in the car around uh, late June, early July and just uh, drive somewhere in the country. And we probably won't be doing that this year, you know, because because uh, the whole country is kind of still shut down until further notice. And, um, you know, and I said, you know, I actually have all these credit card points. I'd actually like to, uh, you know, get on a plane and and take a plane trip somewhere with all these credit card points I've accumulated. And he said, oh yeah, I'm not getting on a plane anytime soon. Uh, probably never again. And I was like, well, you just got to wait for this, you know, coronavirus thing to, to pass by, to get by you. And he said, well, I, ha- I haven't been flying for a really long time, even tw- before coronavirus. And I said, well, what are you, afraid or something? And he said, no, man, I'm Middle Eastern. Oh, yeah, oops. Yeah, that's right. It, it, it must be tough for a Middle Eastern guy to uh, fly ever since uh, 9-11, I said. And he said, no, man, I was getting hassled before 9-11. So, uh... You know, in times like that, where somebody says something like that, and you're talking to somebody with a, va- a drastically different, you know, worldview than yours, you want to try to convey empathy. Say, you know, yeah, I've been in your shoes, but it's sort of difficult for us, you know, sitting apart from each other. You know, he he comes from the Middle East. I I come from you know Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, I've been in the same place my whole life. He's migrated, immigrated, and. Uh, the one time, the one time that I had anything approaching empathy for the guy is when I was uh, told I couldn't ride on the ferry at the Statue of Liberty because I had what looked to be a suspicious package <laughs> in my uh, in my satchel, in my brown leather fossil satchel, and I was like, I could I could tell this guy that right now. I could actually empathize with him, and I decided not to. You know, he had already been waiting out here in the hot Alabama sun for about a day and a half. You know, he's used to this dry heat, and here we are now. It's like wet humidity here in Alabama in the early summertime, and he's waiting for an hour for the landlord to show up, and I was just like, no, I don't want to make his day worse. Yeah. It's 
good to be back here in the studio in Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, usually, I, you know, I used to do the show on a Saturday night. I liked the idea of doing it. Well, no, I, I, I used to do it on Friday night. That's right. I used to like doing it Friday night, the end of the week. I would uh, do it at midnight, usually record until about 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning sometimes. On, on Saturday, I would post the show, and I would do a whole post-production process on, um, on Saturday. And, you know, before long, the, the show kind of took up my whole weekend because I wanted each show to be really good, and I put a lot of energy into creating content for the show and just thinking about it throughout the week, and and it, it really did monopolize my life. And, and then I got this new job. I got a job teaching um, high school, which is uh, what I went to college for and what I was prepared for. Um, and I kind of put the whole teaching thing off for a few years because I got this job as the education director at this park here in Birmingham, you know, interpreting history and, and putting together field trip programs. And I really did feel for about three years or so that that was my calling, that that was what I was kind of destined to do in this world. It was just this job that sort of popped up out of nowhere that I was asked to create. And I really enjoyed it. And then three years later, um, after I took that job, it hadn't so much stagnated for me. It just seemed like the writing was on the wall that my, my job was kind of going to go away pretty quickly because, um, you know, the park was kind of facing some, uh, some downsizing issues. They were trying to scale down and, and, uh, I don't blame them for that at all. That was a good idea, but, uh, I kind of saw the writing on the wall and started sending resumes out and, you know, lo and behold, I ended up, uh, getting a job teaching at the school that I had met specifically through my work at that other park. And, uh, therefore the, the, you know, the job I had led to the job that I, that my next step, the, the job that I, I really needed paid me a little bit more money and all that, which was awesome. And, and that's, that's what life should do. You know, you should always be kind of working toward that next thing. Um, almost never stagnate yourself. And now here I am, I, I just finished my, my third year teaching. I've actually been teaching now for longer than I worked at that other job at my last job. And, uh, and the question that I keep asking myself at the end of every single year, because as a teacher, the cool thing is you get summers off. Of course, you know, you still have to do things during that summer. It's not like you, you stop getting paid or anything, but now you've got a chance to kind of make a little bit of extra money and all that. But you also want to be like, hey, I'm a teacher. I just worked for nine months and now I get three months to do whatever. You know? And I keep asking myself every, every, every summer, am I going to go back to do the podcast? Am I going to go back to do the podcast? I've got time now. Why don't I go back to the, do the podcast? Because the reason why I stopped doing the show, you know, uh, three years ago now, uh, was because I got this new job and, and I, I had to throw every bit of myself into preparing it. You know, I had all these classes I had to plan lessons for. I had to, you know, plan curriculum. I had to collaborate with other teachers. It was a it was just a hell of a summer, 2017, preparing for this new job. And so I stopped doing the show, and, and I, I promised myself that I would never pod fade, as they say. So I, you know, which is the process of doing a podcast where you start out strong and then you slowly but surely <laughs> do less and less and less, you know, it dissipates. 
And I didn't want to pod fade, so I just pod stopped. I just stopped doing it all together. With no explanation, no reasoning, and, and all that. And, and uh, I would not categorize myself at my strongest point as being a popular podcast. I, I definitely had people who were listening and commenting, and that was all nice. And, and in the past three years or so, I would say I've gotten a handful of people saying, like, you know, bring back the show, do another show. Why don't you do another show? And, uh, you know, uh, recently uh, a friend of mine got in touch with me on Facebook saying that the world needs the Midnight Citizen right now. And I don't know what he was alluding to if, like, you know, the, this whole coronavirus thing, uh, you know, is really attacking us all and it's weighing heavy on our souls and, and we need some levity. Um, and I posted a picture of Wolfman Jack from American Graffiti and I just said, you know, the citizen is everywhere, man. You know that scene in American Graffiti where Richard Dreyfus walks in and eats popsicles with uh, the Wolfman Jack? And no. <laughs> so here I am now. You know the 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 school year just ended, and uh, why is this year different than the last three? Well, the simple question that is, I haven't been in school in three in two months, almost three. You know around February or so when this coronavirus news was starting to take over the world and everybody was talking about it, there were these initial murmurings that uh, some of the colleges here in Alabama were not going to invite their students back. They were just going to do online learning after spring break. And we thought that was crazy. You know, in this, uh, we did a field trip back in February and one of my kids came in with a, with a mask on his face and I thought he was being goofy and ironic and, you know, he was, but I said, do not take that on the field trip. Leave that down. And now I kind of feel like I'm like, I don't know, somebody who denied that racism exists or something, you know, because <laughs> now everybody's wearing masks. If you don't wear a mask in public, you're a pariah. And I feel bad now that I said that to that kid. You know, he was just trying to protect himself. He was trying to joke around, too, because, you know, <laughs> but so. Yeah, and, and then after spring break, uh, you know, my, my principal made the announcement. If, if we have uh, one case, no, this is before spring break. If we have one case of coronavirus that was detected in Alabama, we're going to cancel school for the rest of the year, and we're going to switch to an online learning platform, which none of us knew what that mean. How do you teach a kid online? This was before, you know, the, the Zoom entered our vocabulary and you know this is this is before uh you know virtual distance learning entered our vocabulary and and this is before things like uh hey can you mute yourself i'm hearing your vacuum cleaner in the next room or whatever and uh and so now we approach this thing that they called the new normal and we had all these new hashtags we had you know hashtag alone together safer home together whatever all these uh, you know these Things that have just been thrown at us are. You know. And so uh, I've been here for the last three months now uh, in this in this office right now where I used to do this podcast. And so very, very ironically, you know, very ironically indeed, this job, this teaching job, took me away from the studio and now three years later you know it's uh 
it's brought me back. A lot of uh, interesting things going on. A lot of weirdo things. You know, just living in this world right now and staying at home almost all all day long and just watching television. And I've been reading a lot of books. You know, like physical books. Remember those. You sit down and you have a book in your hand that somebody wrote and then you just open it up and you start reading it and then you read to the bottom of one page and then you flip over another page. It's like a really calming experience. I don't know why I don't do more of this. You know? <laughs> I've just been reading like a ton of books lately, getting that done. And there's definitely been some low points too. Uh, I went to a drive-in funeral. Um, my wife's um, friend... Um, who was a maid of honor. No, not a maid of honor. She was, uh, she was in our wedding. She was a bachelorette at our wedding. A bachelorette? No. A bridesmaid. They, that's what they call the, uh, <laughs> that's what they call the women um, who stand next to your wife at the wedding, right? The uh, bridesmaids. She was a bridesmaid at our wedding, and her father, unfortunately, passed away. And uh, they could not have an in-person funeral with a bunch of people in attendance. So they had a private funeral just for friends and family, for very close family, actually. And then the friends and anybody, any distant relatives, they had to park outside in the parking lot and basically watch a live stream of the funeral. And you could watch it online, too. And, and we live about two blocks from where the church actually was. So you could tune into Facebook and watch a live stream of it. But, you know, we, my wife and I, we... um we dressed up and uh, I put on a tie and we got in the car and then we went and parked and sat out there for about an hour and watched this funeral there. And then we drove by the church uh, after the funeral, just right by it and, uh, and waved, you know, to my wife's friend and her family. That was just so it was, you know, just a tough thing to, to witness, um, you know, your father passes away and he cannot have all these people in attendance. Um, these people who have built his life and, you know, so that was, that was dynamic and that's going on all over the place right now. People passing away. And then, and then our cat Dobby, our cat, uh, the one that I have, my wife has had since she's 18 years old. So pretty much her entire adult life and who I've known now for 10 years, unfortunately passed away. And we had to take him in, and uh, that was a terrible day because we had to park outside of the uh, of the vet, and the vet had to come out and, and get him and take him in and basically say that, you know, do all the examinations on him in private and then come out, and we had to ask the question, you know, if we were to euthanize him today, could we come in? And, and fortunately they said, yes, we, you can come in. So we, we got to go in, and wear masks the whole way and uh you know it was just a terrible thing you know it's just everybody's having to do all of the normal things with their life both happy and sad right now but they're um they're doing them such under such unusual circumstances in ways that hamper and deflate and make the experience all the more 
odd. And it's it's kind of tough, you know, not to be cynical in a time like this because uh, you know we started out we started out a couple of months ago, and everybody seemed to be really embracing this. They seemed to be really excited about it. Like, yeah, we're going to beat this. We're going to just stay home, and we're not going to do it. And we're going to quarantine ourselves. We're just going to watch Netflix. We're just going to catch up on our American horror stories and our Ozarks and all that stuff. And People were taking Instagram photos of themselves, just doing ridiculous things in the house. You know, like uh, rock climbers were setting up rock climbing gyms and, uh, you know, people were couldn't go to Disney World. So they were setting up Disney rides in their house out of toilet paper stacks and uh, paper boxes and and uh, and every and it just seemed to be all in good fun. And then all of a sudden now in the last week, two weeks we're being deprived of the one thing that you don't deprive human beings in the, in America of summer. So now in the past week, you've got all this video coming out of these people just like being like, screw it. I'm not going to live in fear. I'm going to go to the beach and I'm going to get in the water and stand, uh, basically stomach to stomach with all these other people without masks on. And, uh, we're just going to, you know, screw it. And, the, the, the tone of the world has just really drastically changed for the worse in the past couple of weeks. And, um, and again, it's, it's hard not to be cynical about it. We're all human beings and we want to move forward with our lives, you know. But the data does not suggest that we're there yet. So, um, so you know, you just kind of want to say, like, I mean, do, all we want to do in the first place is just take a bunch of cute Instagram photos and come up with some uh, cute hashtags and and uh, just be lazy. And now that all that's over, now now that we're we're past all that, and we're over it. We just want to get back out into the world and resume our lives and pretend this this whole thing's over. Uh, it seems like it, you know. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm getting back out into the world even more, and uh, I'll talk about that. You know, for now, though, I think what I'm going to do is play you some music and take a break. Enjoy.
and back. Hope you enjoyed that uh, selection there for you. We had a band called Dark Meat with the song Last of the Frontiersmen. And after that, just now, you heard A Bad Prescription by a band called Physical Plant. And uh, both of those are available in the Free Music Archive at freemusicarchive.org. They give you a bunch of, uh, you know, free Creative Commons music to listen to and play in your podcast or in your movies as long as you attribute them, which I just did and I'm going to do also in the show notes. So, By the way, if you uh, want further information about the Midnight Citizen Show, you want to check out the website. I I don't have one to give you right now. (laughs) Everything is down. I had to uh, take the Midnight Citizen uh, website down to save some money. I stopped... uh, I stopped paying to post the show on a server every month. And that was a heartbreaking day for me back in uh, the fall of whenever it was, 2017, when I just sat down and I had to, you know, delete all the stuff that I'd worked so hard on. But you can still find every episode of the midnight citizen show going back to 2010 that's over 200 episodes probably well over 300 hours of entertainment at archive.org just go there and search for the midnight citizen i've grouped all the shows into the various years from 2010 to 2017 you could also go on to the overnightscape underground where this episode will be posted on sug.com Oh my God, I'm having like a total onsug, yes, onsug.com, not .org or .gov, onsug.com, the Overnightscape Underground. I I thank you, and you thank you. What? So yeah, I have a letter here from... uh, Department of the Treasury. Oh, no, it's from the White House. Uh, My fellow American, our great country is experiencing an unprecedented public health and economic challenge as a result of the global coronavirus pandemic. Our top priority is your health and safety as we wage total war on this invisible enemy. We are also working around the clock to protect hardworking Americans like you from the consequences of the economic shutdown. We are fully committed to ensuring that you and your family have the support that you need to get through this time. On March 27, 2020, Congress passed with overwhelming bipartisan support the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, which I proudly signed into law. I want to thank the United States House of Representatives and the United States Senate for working so quickly with my administration to fast-track this $2.2 trillion in much-needed economic relief to the American people. So you receive $1,200 by direct deposit, so on and so forth. President Donald J. Trump. And I guess that's his signature there. Personally signed. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, President Trump. I really do. I mean, this was, uh, you know, $1,200 is definitely helpful. My wife has still not received hers yet. I don't know if you're listening to this. That'd be great if you could get on that. Because she's the one right now who, you know, is uh, 
work is kind of suffering because she is an actress and her shows she was slated to be in three shows between now and December and uh, they've all been either canceled or postponed and uh, everybody's staying home so in the in the meantime she you know goes goes and does dog sitting and you know she hasn't had as much work there lately because everybody's been home taking care of their own dogs you know but me I've been continuing to get a salary as a teacher which is fantastic because I've been teaching from home and you know going on Google meets every single day and and doing classes as usual with all my students, you know, yet I'm the one who got a stimulus check. Um, you know, which of course my wife and I just, I mean, we put it into our joint account. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, it, it affects both of us though. It really does. I mean, even though I'm still getting money, you know, my wife and I, we split the resources and we split the wealth and uh you know so it's definitely hurting both of us so i've been having to go out and uh, make some extra money we both have and i've been doing uh door del- I've, I've been doing food delivery you know you get these apps you get these doordash and and postmates apps right and uh i did do, you know i signed up for these back in august just thinking it might be nice to go out and do them a couple nights a week and earn some extra money to maybe go on like a nice vacation or something. And, uh, it, they've been mostly good. There's definitely some problems with them. Uh, you know, I don't know if you out there listening to this, if you've done DoorDash or Postmates and, and definitely let me know about it. Um, the number one problem that I had with DoorDash is that they canceled my contract. Um, probably because just a customer wanted to get some free food and uh you know doordash they do these things on customer ratings so that you know the highest rating you can get is like a 5.0 and uh i had doordash since august you know and uh and went out and i had exceptional customer service ratings i took pride you know in going out and being able to get people food on time deliver it with a smile of course now you're wearing a mask so they can't see your smile but uh you know i went out and i I gave it to them with a smile and i was very prompt and i was just very happy to get them their food you know after a long day of work for both them and me and uh, i thought i was doing a pretty good job you know i would go out and i would see a lot of these other door dashers and they would be out there and they wouldn't really seeming to be taking great effort you know And I was like, I'm not going to be like that. I'm going to be, you know, if I do something, I'm going to do it great. And I did do it great. So between August and March, you know, uh, I, I, I did all these orders. I think I did maybe about 200 orders total with DoorDash, just driving, you know, picking up food, taking it to people's houses, going out, hitting the road again. Probably made about, you know, in that time, about $5,000 or something like that, you know. It's not a very lucrative job. I would not recommend doing it as a uh, as a full-time gig. And, you know, then back in uh back in early April, I get this email from DoorDash saying that my contract's been canceled because uh apparently I'd used vulgar and abusive language with a uh with a customer when I dropped off their food. <laughs> yeah. And I contacted DoorDash and I was like, uh this isn't true. I mean, in DoorDash, you don't really even have enough time to interact with a customer. You know, you go and pick food up and then you take it to them. A lot of times you don't even see them. They just ask you to leave it at their door. And, uh, like, when do I get time to, uh, to use vulgar and abusive language with a customer? 
And so I, I contacted DoorDash about this and, uh, you know, it was like talking to a computer. Of course, it probably was a computer. You know, they would say, uh, please hold for a minute. I see that your contract is being canceled. We'll see what we can see. And they come back a minute later. Yes. You use vulgar and abusive con uh, language with a customer. Thank you for your service. Goodbye. <laughs> and they would hang up, you know? And so just no explanation whatsoever at all, you know? And, uh, so now I've just been doing Postmates for the last, you know, a uh, couple of months, just off and on, uh, not nearly as much cause I've been trying to fi uh, finish up teaching, but I have been doing it almost every day for like the last, you know, week and a half. And it's just a nice thing, you know, to get in your car and it's a nice job. Nobody hassles you. You're your own boss. Sometimes I'll need to be overweight on the other side of town for something. And I'll just be like, well, why don't I just get, you know, make a, maybe pick up a Postmates order and get paid to go to that side of town. So, you know, sometimes a lot of, you know, a lot of times you're just getting paid to be in your car all day and listening to music. And, uh, you know, it, it's nice, especially this time of year when, uh, the weather is more or less nice. It, it does get very hot, but you got AC in there. So you crank up your AC, you can roll your window down and just drive around, you know, like Brad Pitt and once upon a time in Hollywood, just driving around the city listening to your music and just being free DoorDash screwed it up they they didn't you know they basically didn't care about my side of it uh, none of my statistics none of my good customer ratings or tips spoke for themselves like I thought they were going to I thought that's the whole reason they had customer ratings but you know no and then I was doing some research. I found out that apparently a lot of people like to uh, go on to the DoorDash app and uh, get free food by basically making a bogus complaint against their DoorDash driver, saying that they use vulgar and abusive language or, you know, they, they took a sip out of my Coke, you know, and uh, there's no recourse that the driver has on this at all. It's not like we wear body cameras or anything like that, like the police. <laughs> you know. Of course, the police, even when they wear body cameras... Uh, doesn't always work. You know, they, they very often get exonerated, but anyway, that's a whole nother thing. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, uh, but I have been doing uh, Postmates for the last couple of weeks, um, just on and off. And uh, it's been good. It's begun, you know, a good way to earn some extra money in this time. It's, it's very, it's no strings attached. It's very hassle free. Just don't do it full time. So yeah, I've just been uh, sitting around the house. Other than that, occasionally going out, mostly just sitting around the house and uh, sitting in my office here in the studio, in the Midnight Citizen studio, reading books, you know, and uh, drinking coffee and beer and whiskey and uh, looking out the window at the squirrels eating the bird food. I just got finished reading a book that I had not read since I was in the seventh grade. And I don't know how often you go back and reread books, but I do find this interesting thing with going back and reading like a book that sort of seemed to define you as either a reader or a person when you were very young and reading that book as an adult and just seeing what 
memories it brings up. You know, you got all these memories locked away in your subconscious. And I truly feel that you can unlock those memories by watching movies that you used to love or reading books that you used to enjoy and definitely listening to music. I mean, I think most people, when they want to unlock the memories of their past and the secrets of their youth, they listen to music. But uh, to me, books really help as well. And uh, I was reading Jurassic Park recently. And Jurassic Park is probably a book that I read the most of probably the first adult book that I ever read up until the time that uh, I read Jurassic Park in the seventh grade. I had been reading mostly, you know, young adult books like the Goosebumps books and uh, like the Outsiders by S.E. Hinton, the, the one that everybody reads in the sixth grade. But Jurassic Park came out, you know, because the movie came out when I was 11 years old in 1993 and I was deeply interested in the movie. And my parents, for whatever reason, did not let me go see that movie. Everybody else saw that movie, you know, second graders at my church saw that movie and they would come to church every Sunday and just describe for me in detail the grizzly dino attacks. I was like, how are you? What justice in the world is this that you're able to see this movie? And I'm much older than you. I'm starting to grow like, you know, peach fuzz above my lip. That's not fair. So... And then I find out years later, my parents would have taken me to see the movie. They just didn't want to see the movie. So they didn't take me to see the movie. <laughs> and then my dad tells me not six months ago, another piece of the puzzle. He went and saw the movie with a friend of his from church. Like my dad went and saw the movie and he said he really liked it. Oh, man. So between like, you know, June of 1993 and about October of 1994, me getting to see Jurassic Park was a point of constant contention in my house. And my parents just never would let me see it for some reason. They just kept denying it to me. And to this day, they can't exactly tell me why. Except they didn't want to see it. They wouldn't drop me off at the movie theater. I was going to see movies by myself at that time. I don't know why they couldn't have you know, dropped me off. But whatever. But yeah, when I so the, the way that I saw the movie was I read the book which is completely different than the movie, but that's okay. And of course I wanted to read it for, uh, you know, the grizzly dino attacks, the, uh, the fun adventure. When I was a kid, I, I wanted to read it because of passages like this, you know, Tim slipped out the door and saw the velociraptor down at the far end of the corridor, standing by the balcony. He stared in astonishment. How had it gotten out of the freezer? Then as he watched a second raptor suddenly appeared on the balcony and he understood the raptor hadn't come from the freezer at all. It had come from outside. It had jumped from the ground below. The second raptor landed silently, perfectly balanced on the railing. Tim couldn't believe it. The big animal had jumped 10 feet straight up, more than 10 feet. Their legs must be incredibly powerful. See, like when I was uh, 13, you know, I would just like bunch up and get so excited by passages like that. It's just like, yes, this is just like watching the movie, even though it's not. And... Just this last week, I read this book and, you know, and uh, I didn't really care about passages like that where the velociraptor is chasing this little kid around. I would have loved that when I was a kid because I was a kid and and the way that the book I related to the book so strongly is because it constantly had two kids in danger. That was the same thing as the movie. But when I read the book this past week, this is what excited me and got me interested in the book. It isn't a matter of wanting it or not, Ian Malcolm said, eyes closed. He spoke slowly through the drugs. It's a matter of what you think you can accomplish. 
When the hunter goes out in the rainforest to seek food for his family, does he expect to control nature? No, he imagines that nature is beyond him, beyond his understanding, beyond his control. Maybe he prays to nature, to the fertility of the forest that provides for him. He prays because he knows he doesn't control it. He's at the mercy of it. Uh, I love the stuff in, in Jurassic Park where Ian Malcolm talks about nature and, and, and ethics and control and commerce. Um, you know, that's the stuff that gets me excited as a kid, uh, as an adult. Sorry. Um, you know, Jurassic Park is good reading for kids of all ages, you know. It gets very tedious with its uh, descriptions of dino attacks and adventure and all that. But, uh, uh, you know, but uh, that book was published, what, 30 years ago? And I think it still holds up today. And I, I assigned it to uh, my students uh, to read. Every year I put together a summer reading list for my students. And uh, I tell them that they have the option of reading one of six books that I assigned them. So Jurassic Park was first in the list. And uh, I think a lot of kids are going to choose Jurassic Park. And I'm glad for them. Um, because it is, uh, you know, I hadn't read it in years. And uh, it's, still a, it's still a pretty halfway decent damn good book. So, yeah, I think what we're going to do now is take a trip. Oh, yes, we haven't been there in quite a while, have we? We're going to take a trip down to the Video Street Video Store and watch some movies. Watch some quick little videos I put together for you. I rented, and I will be back. Wrap it up at Sam Goody. Over 10,000 gifts, under $15. Wrap it up. The latest music from pop to jazz. Smash hit movies from children's favorites to thrilling adventures. Or blank tape and more. Wrap up all your holiday shopping at Sam Goody. Goody. Got it. We've got some great stuff happening on Store Beats today. We'll see the video from Stock Room Review that everyone's raving over off their latest disc, Pallet Palace. Sensational. Also, stand by for detection with Always Watching. This tune is headed for a number one spot with its insightful look at shrinkage control. Watching closely for accurate inventory counts, correct paperwork processing like invoicing and receiving, and careful register operation. All very much key to good all-around asset protection. You know... There's a place in the store that sometimes gets overlooked or taken for granted, but treated with a little attention, it can actually help generate profits while protecting company assets. Of course, I'm talking about the fitting room. Customers like service. They like knowing that someone will be there to unlock the door, to help them find a different size, and to save them time by collecting their unwanted apparel items for return to the sales floor. The associate responsible for the fitting room does an important service for the customer while helping control company assets. Well, the fitting room is what's happening for the new sound hitting the streets called Fabulous Fit. Vocalist Carly Jordan had many unpleasant experiences at fitting rooms and a variety of sores. Sometimes made to feel like a thief, sometimes ignored, but rarely treated like a valuable customer. She was tired of it, so Fabulous Fit was created to voice what proper procedure at the fitting room should be. A good balance of service and loss prevention. We're going to kick it off with the debut release from Fabulous Fit. Here's a cut called Fit For You. 
Every day, first thing in the morning, an associate gets the key. This associate is responsible for continuous availability. It ensures that the place is covered, giving customers some peace of mind, because they have the right to try what they want, not having to wait till the timing is right. Now, let's just take a for instance. A customer is at the door. She wants to try on some items and then maybe she'll try on more. But you can bet she won't like waiting when she's got something better to do. Then stand around wasting her time while she stands there waiting on you. If there's lots of goods in hand, then go ahead and check the bunch. One is nice and six are just fine. Any more than six is too much. Cause six, you see, is the maximum. At one time. That's right, at one time. Just count each garment separately. A two-piece counts for two. And if there's seven, eight, nine, or ten, the person comes out and back in again. Cause six, you see, is the maximum. At one time. That's right, at one time. Let me know. Let me know when you're ready, and we'll make an even exchange. That way, you'll try on everything that you wanted to try today. Just say for a moment that the lady wants another size. Hey, that's good service at the fitting room, like the smile that associate provides. How'd you do? How'd you make out? It's pleasant chatter that you can say while you check the count at the fitting room before she walks away. Oh my, oh my, there's only five. You scream as she gives them back, but the trick here is to be polite, not to launch a big attack. You just nicely say, please wait a moment while I check it out. Perhaps it was left behind. And then go and check the fitting room to see what you can find. Just remember though, do not accuse. The trick is to be kind. Yeah, the trick is to be kind. The associate available at all times. The associate available at all times. Garments, not the hangers, are the quantity. Hangers don't matter, it's the garments you count. One, two, three, four, five, six, six. is the maximum at any one time. One time. The maximum at any one time. One time. The trick is to be kind. Yeah, the trick is to be kind. The associate available at all times. The associate available at all times. One, two, three, four, five, six. six. Is the maximum at any one time. One time. The maximum at any one time. One time. The trick is to be kind. The maximum at any one time. One time. Hmm, that's one catchy number. You know, as I was hearing it this time, I caught some things that I guess I've always taken for granted. I mean, I know that six is the max number of garments, but those are individual pieces, not hangers or clothing sets. And then the associate actually counts each piece again to make sure they're all accounted for. Yet there really is a way to do it that's not insulting or accusing of the customer. Way to go, fabulous fit. 
All in all, the fitting room is a pretty good balance of providing good customer service, like being available, offering assistance, and suggesting accessory or related items while practicing good loss prevention techniques without accusing. Actually, providing customer service, paying attention to customers, is one of the greatest theft deterrents there is. And our next video comes from one of my favorites, Shrink Alert, with their latest ounce of prevention. This is a hard look at store theft and the effects it has on the company by the Mysterious Island now continues on TNT. I'm Pam, this is my partner Teller, and since TNT pays less than a working wage, we've had to accept positions moonlighting as security guards for this building. The chance to watch monster movies while protecting an edifice is a heady mix. <laughs> Hi, Penn and Teller on duty at TNT's Monster Vision. We're watching the building while we watch the movies. Everything is kosher from cellar to penthouse. Coming up next on Very Special Special Effects is Mysterious Island. It's about a bunch of Civil War soldiers and a couple of fine ladies who end up stranded on an island inhabited by humongous crabs, chickens, and bees. We like this movie because it shows that soldiers, reporters, and society ladies can live together peacefully when forced to. The presence of giant animals should not be a deterrent to people of various cultures forced to cohabitate. That's one of the lessons of Mysterious Island. Among the things to look for in Mysterious Island are a bunch of soldiers who must have missed the day in boot camp when a drill instructor told them, if you fall off a balloon and you have to swim to a deserted island, take off your boots. Also, Mysterious Island reinforces the notion that when foodstuffs are made giant, they can be really, really scary. <laughs> Teller is fighting with a giant Piro sandwich. Stay tuned for Mysterious Island and thrilled with the excitement of lines like, this is an island, all right. There's nothing but water all around. Fight the prologue. Oh, is it all right? So you won, huh? Night Watchman Penn and Teller. So, a bunch of Civil War soldiers escape from prison in a balloon. None of the guys really knows how to fly a balloon, so they're just floating up around there for several hours. They finally get the balloon down low enough to see a monomaniac who's breeding larger-than-life animals on an island. So they yell down to the monomaniac, Where are we? And the monomaniac looks up and says, You're in a balloon, you damn fools. <laughs> That's a little Bert and I story that we adapted specially for this. We're Penn and Teller, and now back to Mysterious Island on TNT. I ought not bells for spring people. Monster Vision. We're watching very special, special effects. Gonna eat some giant crab tonight. Remember next week on Monster Vision, it's the best of the outer limits on TNT. Do the crab dance. More Harryhausen mayhem ahead. Sea monsters, gorgons, and winged horses. Out act Harry Hamlin in Clash of the Titans. And next Saturday night, TNT's answer to Donnie and Marie, Penn and Teller journey to the outer limits. Monster Vision.
Ben Gillette, back with you in the middle of Mysterious Island. Just as Michael Callan has done in tonight's movie, Teller is trying to prove his manhood by fighting a giant chicken. In my neighborhood, nothing says real man better than that. We'll be back to Mysterious Island in a minute. After Mysterious Island, stay tuned for Clash of the Titans as very special special effects continues on TNT's Monster Vision. <laughs> That was a trip to the Video Street Video Store for tonight. Which I, I, I should say, by the way, I, uh, I, you know, I was finishing a thought earlier and I, I got lost and uh, I forgot to come back to this. I always used to do shows at Friday at midnight, try to make it as true to the concept of the show as possible, which is just a guy in a room talking into a microphone all night long. <laughs> And I would, I, you know, I would start at 12 and usually end about 1.30 or 2. And here I am, and it's a Wednesday night, May the 27th, 2020, at 10.35 p.m. I started at like 9.30. Uh, not a true concept for my return show, but, you know, whatever. I'm on a different sleep schedule lately. So the Video Street Video Store, the videos we rented were the 1999 or 1990 Sam Goody Wrap It Up Record Store commercial. I'll probably play that one again at Christmas time. We had the Ames Asset Protection Awareness Part Two with the, which is kind of like a like an MTV style, uh, you know, music video attempt to train the youths who I guess like MTV and also work at Ames Department Store <laughs> to. Uh, you know, to prevent shrinkage, which is not what you think. It's not like the Seinfeld term of shrinkage, but you know, when you have less inventory at the end of the day than you started out with and not all that inventory was paid for, that's that shrinkage. And they tell them in that in that video to be kind if you suspect that somebody, you know, stole something. Um you know, just be nice to them. Don't accuse them immediately, you know, kind of attempt the Patrick Swayze roadhouse approach. Be nice until it's time to not be nice. When I worked at Suncoast video, they just told us to run them down. So, uh, yeah. And then, uh, we had a TNT monster vision from the early nineties. I think that was either 92 or 93 with Penn and Teller. That was before Joe Bob Briggs took over monster vision. So there it is your video street video store selections for tonight. And with that being said, let's take a trip to Viscaga, Alabama, along the banks of the Cobber River. It's been a radical week down there. Here we are at the beginning of the summer, and though it may be unofficial as we surround ourselves with Memorial Day festivities, it is summer nonetheless, and everyone in town knows it. They don't need a calendar to tell them that the summer solstice, the official beginning of the season, is still a month away. No, they know summer is here. They know it in their bones, and they know it with their senses. 
The citizens of Viscaga know that summer's here because along the vast canals of power lines that cut through the piney woods, the electricity hums a little louder in the corona discharge, and the cicadas sing in the trees at summertime. They know summer's here because of the sudden wave of humidity, making their backs wet with sweat and making them become one with their clothes. They know summer's here because of the heat waves, the literal heat waves that float in front of their faces and around noon make the landscape a floating illusion, and how the kids play in the sprinklers and the space between their houses. They know summer is here because the restaurants around town spike in their sales of cold refreshments, cold sodas and milkshakes, Italian shaved ice, and of course, cold beer. You can see the outside patios filled to capacity every night, standing room only as the patrons indulge, and move under the hot street lights to the beats coming from their car stereos. Of course, a sure sign of summer's arrival in Viscaga is when the roadside sign of Joe Town's cosmic twin drive-in out on Route 78 has been flipped on once again, the flickering, buzzing neon of its large arrow pointing the way to another summer of Hollywood escapism, bottomless boxes of popcorn, and styrofoam cups of soda, and mini-golf. Joe Town himself has lost count of how many seasons he's owned the Cosmic, but he, as well as his patron, patrons, knows why it is named the Cosmic. They'll never forget that because the particular incident that is its namesake put the drive-in in the very town of Escaga itself on the map back in 1955. Back then, it had been named simply the Viscaga Twin, but all that changed one bright, cloudless night that summer when a small grapefruit-sized meteorite fell through the atmosphere and struck the leg of a teenage patron as he sat in the bed of his truck with his date, watching appropriately enough, it came from outer space, or so the legend goes. Somehow, the anomaly did not kill the young man, although if his date had chosen to be a little closer to him, it would have surely killed her. No, it just nicked the meaty part of the kid's thigh, but nevertheless stunned him into shock. When Bill Witherspoon woke up in the hospital the next day, he found a small bandage just below his right kneecap and his face on the front page of every newspaper from Atlanta to Shanghai. Dave Garraway and J. Fred Muggs even interviewed him on the Today Show. Today, you might expect to visit the Viscaga History Museum on the second floor of the public library on Stanton Street and see the rock that crash-landed and shot Viscaga to the stratosphere of fame for a day. But sadly, this isn't so for the recovered meteorite has set in a glass case at the Paul Bear Bryant Museum in Tuscaloosa since two days after the incident all the way back in June of 1955. That was when the governor stepped in and decided the rock should be in a popular, heavy traffic, trafficked, and central viewing place in the state. Not some backwater burg like Viscaga that nobody ever visited, but at the University of Alabama where throngs of Crimson Tide fans could pass it for a brief instant on their way to Bryant-Denny Stadium every Saturday without giving it a second thought. If you're asking yourself the obvious question, then the answer is yes. The people in Viscaga are bitter about it. They have always been bitter about it, especially because long after the governor and the administration of the University of Alabama, who conspired against the town, had either left their posts or died, there was no attempt at restitution. Not even a murmuring of returning the Witherspoon meteorite, as it had been dubbed, to its terrestrial home long after the novelty had expired, which was about a week after the kid had been struck. 
What was probably more insulting to the town was that the School of Art at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, sometime in the early 60s as a peace offering, designed and donated a papier-mâché mold of the meteorite to the town, where it sits today, depressingly, in a glass case on top of the concession stand at the Cosmic Twin Drive-In, next to the big pretzel oven. It's a bittersweet display, but the people of the town accepted it anyway, because that's what they do, and that's what they've always done in Viscaga. Accept it. Bend over and accept it. Still today, you're not likely to find a single supporter of the Alabama Crimson Tide in the town of Viscaga. Most everybody roots passionately for Auburn, and those who don't, don't care at all. Of course, school is officially over for the year. It did it on Friday afternoon at 325 Central Standard Time, but not before this year's graduating seniors had their last say. You see, a for sure sign that summer has arrived in Viscaga is the sudden surge of juvenile vandalism around town. It's a pretty common sight to see lawns TP'd and windows soaped. The pranks are led each year by the seniors at Daniel Pratt High School. Nothing too sinister, of course. The pranks are only somewhat destructive and disruptive, but mostly they're charming. This year's big senior prank saw the seniors, led by Abe Gibson, class president, first-string quarterback for the Viscaga High Confederates, and the homecoming king in a black-on-black outfit with matching ski mask, sneaking with his uniformed mob of hellraisers into a window in the gym basement they left open the previous day, and raiding the darkened teachers' rooms, all 75 of them, and swapping the top drawers of these educators' desks. It took about two hours of diligent and motivated hard work, the seniors shuffling like ninjas through the dark and silent corridors of this place that had been their lives' work these last four years, and which, after tomorrow, they would never set foot in again. When teachers and administrators arrived the next morning, they were at first surprised to find everything in school as it had been the day before. There was no missing or found items as there had been in previous years of senior pranks. No gigantic, unrolled sheets of bubble wrap covering the floors as there had been with the class of 1978. No vehicles of administrators have been taken apart and reassembled in the gym as the class of 1981 had done. No, everything seemed in order. That was until the teachers began opening their top drawers, finding they had been removed and replaced in the desks of their colleagues. It took no time for the teachers to figure out what had happened, and nearly three hours for them to meet among themselves and figure out which drawer belonged to whom. There were some truly odd finds, too, specifically when Miss Dwyer, the choir teacher and on Sundays organist at the First Baptist Church, opened her drawer to find the latest issue of Penthouse Magazine. Initially, no educator stepped forward to claim this drawer, and it wasn't until a custom ballpoint pen with Mr. Bentley's name inscribed on it was discovered among the drawer's contents was the drawer officially identified by administration. Mr. Bentley, the junior social studies teacher and the perpetual bachelor among the faculty, was questioned by Principal Danvers about this contraband, but he simply stated his case that the porno magazine had been planted a sort of cherry on the top for this year's act of senior rebellion? Principal Danvers, having had enough of a headache for one day and having little recourse if he were to question Abe Gibson, what was he going to do to the senior expel him, excused the tenured teacher and allowed him to live to instruct another day. Close call, Mr. Bentley. And down at the banks of the Kaaba, in a distant and shaded spot in the thick pines, 
The senior class gathered in a makeshift parking lot of mud to celebrate what none of them could imagine would be the one time in their lives where everything was behind them and everything was in front of them. It was just the start of a long weekend of debauchery filled with parties and beer bust, and one time I had no idea you liked me hookups, and all of it being only interrupted for a short time Saturday morning for a formal graduation ceremony at the football stadium. Of course, most of the action of the celebration centered around Abe Gibson, the hero of the moment, who sat 10 feet off the ground atop his, the bed of his F-250 with jacked-up suspension. He would never be this beautiful again. The girls surrounded him, offered to get him another beer for his koozie, swooned over his recounting of how the midnight raid on Daniel Pratt High had gone down. And watching all this in the shadows of an already heavily shaded spot was McCord Nix, Max to his friends, of which he had few that were true, trying not to let his jealousy overtake him. For years, Mac had been watching a movie on broken repeat. It was called My Life in Paradise, the Abe Gibson story, and to him the plot was a dud. It defied in total the logical arc of stories, a perversion of the very nature of interesting stories. The Freitag's Pyramid in the Abe Gibson story was more of a plateau. It did not consist of an inciting incident to spark the action, nor a central antagonist to hurl conflict at him, Abe Gibson, the protagonist, as he approached the climax at the top of the pyramid. No, the Abe Gibson story was a flat narrative. It started out with a guy getting whatever he wanted and then continuing to get whatever he wanted forevermore. Mac had watched the story play out since kindergarten, and he was sick of it. Many stories that followed the natural rise and fall of Freitag's Pyramid, he had noted in AP English where he was an A student, were consistent with a pleasing denouement or a happy ending. But, Mac thought, what was the point of a happy ending if the whole journey up to that point had been happy? The ending could not logically be earned, and therefore, the ending must be counterintuitive to the rest of the narrative. There was Abe Gibson facing his ending, on the back of the pickup truck his construction contractor father had bought for him on his 16th birthday, fought over by an ever-increasing gaggle of concubines. It was not logical. It could not stand. You want to go for a swim? This was Eddie Brass speaking, Mac's best friend since the fourth grade, drawing Mac's attention away from King Abe to the river, where their fellow seniors were splashing and floating and diving in wild contortions off the rope swing. You know, it's not even that great of a prank, Mac lamented, switching teachers' drawers like anybody's ever going to remember that 50 years from now. And it was right then that Mac Nix had this big idea. For even though he had been about as unmemorable to anyone but his grateful teachers the last four years, whom he constantly pleased with his exemplary work, Mac was about to pull off the greatest senior prank of all time. Or maybe it was more of a happening, the kind he'd read about Charlie Manson and his merry band of pranksters doing before they started getting into killing people, when they'd sneak into people's houses and arrange the furniture around and never let on who did it. Whatever it was, the people of Escaga, Alabama would not only remember and talk about what he was about to do 50 years from now, but it would become a part of their town's very legacy for generations to come. You're full of it, Sherry Prince said when she walked over to Mac and Eddie, offering to share a cigarette, and Mac had told her the plan. No way you pull that off, at least not tonight on such short notice. Why don't you just forget it and come to the party at my house? You might actually have a good time if you don't think about it so much. Cherry was the one girl in high school that Mac could talk to without feeling threatened and stuttering like a tool. 
She had an easy way about her, an accessible personality that can move between all rungs of the social ladder. The jocks, the princesses, the wastoids, the mathletes, the dweebs, everybody loved Cherry Prince. And it goes without saying that Mac had a major crush on her. The only problem with Cherry Prince was that for a brief time last fall, she had dated Abe Gibson, but Mac had let that slide. She just wanted to become homecoming queen, so there was politics involved. Anyway, the personal invitation to her house was tempting, but Mac, more disciplined than ever, hopped behind the wheel of his junker 1988 Crown Vic, a hand-me-down his grandfather had sold him on his 16th birthday for $1, and hit the road west toward Tuscaloosa and the University of Alabama. Of course, he and Eddie, who tagged along for want of anything better to do, and definitely not one to walk into Cherry's party all by himself, had to stop first by the Cosmic Drive-In. Mr. Town, as he had for the last three summers, had given Mac a job as a projectionist of the Cosmic, and usually expected him to work every Friday night between late May and early August. But he had given him a rare night off to enjoy the fruits of his labor on graduation eve. Nevertheless, there was Mac at the drive-in, keeping a low profile among the throngs of roving families and lip-locked teenagers and impatient cinephiles, hoping that if any of his fellow staffers happened to see him, they would just assume he was working as normal and not up to anything suspicious as he snuck behind the counter of the concession stand and swiped at the paper mache mold of the Witherspoon meteorite from its glass display case next to the big pretzel oven. And west they drove through the night, Mac and Eddie, along I-59, making only one quick stop at a Stuckey's along the way so that Eddie could pee and Mac could drop a dime to his older cousin Johnny out of the blue and ask him for a small, random favor at midnight. For as long as Mac could remember, Johnny Nix, his senior by ten years, had been the lone stray wolf of his family tree. Once busted for running an unlicensed pharmacy out of the trunk of his car, and ever since being excused as a guest of the state, ambling around all points of the Deep South, looking for whatever place would hire him on conditions, Johnny now worked on the landscape crew at the University of Alabama, which didn't much help his credibility with his family. Viscaga born and raised. Still, Johnny the Fredo was always looking for a way back into the inner circle, and here was his cousin Mac, calling out of the blue, with a request to meet him at the entrance of the Paul Bear Bryant Museum with his passkey. The job took a mere ten minutes, most of which were consumed with making polite small talk with Johnny, who wanted to know how his mama and daddy were. Not Mac's mama and daddy, but his own, for they had disowned him since his arrest. After those pleasantries were exchanged, it then took only two minutes to slip into the shuttered Paul Bear Bryant Museum, sneak past the monuments of great Crimson Tide victories past, open the glass case, and make the switch. On the road back, Eddie worked double hard on his inhaler, while scanning through the night for highway patrol who had been alerted to their scheme. But Mac assured him there was nothing to worry about. The thing had gone down cool as coke. Well, half of it anyway. They still had to get to the Cosmic Drive-In, where by now, at one o'clock in the morning, the place would be closed and silent, and they should be able to sneak back into the concession stand with the keys Mr. Town had given him for being his trusted employee, and restore the real Witherspoon meteorite to its rightful place. Piece of cake. As a matter of fact, Mac was so cocky the closer they got to Viscaga, the closer to pulling it all off, that he decided to stop by Cherry Prince's party after all, and proved to her once and for all that he wasn't full of it. 
He wasn't some book nerd capable of understanding the world, but incapable of shaping it to his own will. He had toppled anything Abe Gibson and the whole stupid lot of those tools could pull off. When he told Eddie of the detour, Eddie affected his best short round voice from Temple of Doom. No time for love, Dr. Jones. To which Mac just rolled his eyes. How had he been friends with this dork for so long? Cherry's party was in full swing when the Crown Vic rolled up and Mac walked in the door with his backpack slung over his shoulder and Eddie following behind, tapping his inhaler hard against his palm and denying that it had been cashed. Among the thrones of wasted youth, it was tough to find a quiet corner of the house to show Cherry the contents of the Jansport, but Cherry ushered them both into a quiet laundry room to tell them to spill the beans on what was so important. And it was at this point that Mac's story would take a dramatic twist, generally referred to on the diagram of Freitag's Pyramid as the crisis, the point just before the climax where all hope is in jeopardy and the protagonist must either embrace his final obstacle or retreat. For just as Mac opened the bag to reveal to Cherry its contents, a boy and girl looking for a quiet place to have a I had, I had no idea you liked me hookup barged in and asked why what he had there in his little bag. And Eddie, wheezing from the depths of his lungs, fearing they had been caught and that the jig was up, admitted it all. They had the real rock, the Witherspoon rock, and were on their way to return it to the cosmic drive-in, its terrestrial home, where it had fallen years ago on the behalf of the senior class. The boy and girl quickly abandoned their hookup, and instead got their release by being the ones to spread the word before they could blink, all eyes were on Mac and Eddie, they could have retreated, stuffed the rock back in the backpack, and bolted out the back door to resume their plan to silently place the rock and have the people of Viscaga wonder who it had been forevermore. Who had, been restored, who had restored the rock and the very town itself to its former glory? But instead, Mac looked at their eyes, their faces, the whole lot of them, his peers, the offspring of the town that had been kicked around, pushed to the sidelines, and disrespected for years— so he took the rock out and hoisted it high over his head. Behold, Mac and Eddie were hailed as the returning heroes. The meteorite was passed around and examined by the house, tossed around as a football in an impromptu game in the front yard, posed with for pictures. Mac and Eddie, meanwhile, were surrounded for, for the next two hours. Their hands were never free of a drink, and by the night's end, they could have commanded a legion of their fellow classmates to do their bidding rob a convenience store, strip naked and dive into the icy cold waters of the Cahaba River? Max should have done this years ago. But not everyone was hip to it. From the shadows, the cold gleaming, jealous eyes of the one they had usurped, the cuckolded Abe Gibson watched. In a small dead moment of the night, he managed to get Mac alone on the premise of congratulating him face to face. I just want you to know, Abe said, soon to take the gloves off, that you committed a crime. My prank didn't hurt anyone, but you robbed from a town, and when you put that stolen rock up at the drive-in, you're going to make the rest of the town as big a criminal as you, and you're not going to get away with it. I won't allow it. Mac, speechless and the for, for the first time that night, quivering and doubting his actions, was soon interrupted by Cherry, who had been listening to the whole thing. Mac noticed a piece of paper in her hand. She said, you tell anyone what Mac did and I'll tell everyone what you're going to college in the fall. What are you talking about, Abe Gibson said. Everybody knows I'm going to Auburn. Is that true? And with that, Cherry showed him the paper in her hand, 
a photocopy of his letter of intent to join the freshman class that despised University of Alabama. I told you about that in confidence. Anyway, that letter's BS. I never even sent it in. Yeah, but you considered it enough to sign it. Mac had to admire Cherry's cunning. Apparently, dating Abe Gibson last fall had come with some unique fringe bits for political leverage. Well, it's a free country anyway, Abe was beginning to whine. I can go to any college I want to. Now he was quivering and doubting his actions. I don't know this town anything. Yeah, Cherry said, but your dad still works here. And once they see this letter of intent in the Sunday paper, no self-respecting citizen of Viscaga will ever hire him to build them anything ever again. In the early morning hours, long after Abe Gibson had backed off his threat and left in a rage, and most of the party had either left or passed out in the nooks and crannies of Cherry's parents' house, Cherry, the sober host through the night, chauffeured Mac and Eddie to the Cosmic Drive-In, where they fulfilled the final stage of their night's purpose. They walked casually to the glass case next to the big pretzel oven and placed the rock in its cradle. Then they sat there on the hood of Cherry's Mustang, a small dot of life in the giant, vacant lot, littered still with the styrofoam Coke cups and popcorn boxes from the night before, and they stared up at the black sky, slowly growing brighter from where in years so long ago they were now legend. A small rock the size of a grapefruit had fallen and made this place important. And they talked about what they would be, where they would end up, and how they would continue to change the world. from Birmingham, Alabama. That has been the Midnight Citizen Show. I hope you enjoyed it. Come back for more next time. I don't know when there's going to be a next time. I don't know what the uh, future of the show is going to be, quite honestly, if I'm going to keep doing things this summer. If I'm, uh, you know, I don't know. Just let me know if you like the show or not, and uh, I'll try to plan accordingly. One thing I forgot about doing shows in the studio is how god dang hot it gets in here in the summertime. Of course, I'm drinking whiskey right now. I'm wearing knee-high black socks. That probably doesn't help that much, but <laughs> it's okay. Once again, check me out on OnSug, the Overnightscape, onsug.com. Also, go to the archive at archive.org and search the Midnight Citizen. You can find old shows 
just like this one. And until next time, keep your eyes open.